Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. Uh, it is week five at this point. Look at that. We got a five-week month for Axe Murder, uh, March. Aren't we lucky? It is. We are, our listeners are, and uh, with the good times are just going to keep rolling this week. And by good times, unfortunately, I mean heads because we're oh, still because we're still talking about axe murders. Okay. Uh, this week we are going to discuss a story. It's still ladies. It's still uh, International Women's Month, as you know. <laughs> and this we did not plan it that way. In this axe murder march, we are. Um, the ladies are doing it for themselves. It's all it's all female axe murderers. You're right, Carrie. It's just kind of how it worked out, but it worked out nicely. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been talking about Lizzie Borden all month long. It's a lot to talk about. She uh, killed <laughs> killed the hell out of her parents with those allegedly. With that axe. Um, yep, and listen to that last week's episode for both of our thoughts on that. Uh, you can catch a mini-sode out now or soon, uh, depending I on... I usually put them out on Fridays, so they don't come out at like, the exact same time as the episodes. Okay, excellent. Then depending on whether when you're hearing this, today or tomorrow, you can hear a mini-sode on Carla Faye Tucker. Um, on Patreon. On Patreon. What did you think about that story, Carrie? I said in the episode, I mean, I had heard her name before, um, but I thought she was a serial killer. I didn't know it was just kind of one event... Yep. That uh, really dictated the rest of her life. Yeah. Uh, and shortened the rest of her life. But today, mm-hmm. we are talking about Clementine Barnabet. And this is a story that I set up a little bit during last Axe Murder Month when uh, we were talking about The Man from the Train, the excellent Bill James book. Uh, that book had a chapter in it that introduced me to this story I'd never heard before of Clementine Barnabet. I'd never heard it either. And she is, obviously, it's a story that deals with a string of axe murders in 1911 and 1912, so it fit right into the man with the train narrative, but none of these murders are uh, probably a part of that series. Mm -hmm. Um, You see, Carrie, in 1911 and 1912, at least 11 black families were killed in their homes at night with an axe in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas towns running along the Southern Pacific Railroad. So we have some racial targeting again, like the axe murderer of New Orleans. Which was a crimes committed against Italian families, mostly deli and grocery owners. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, Bill James points out that given, and for those who don't know, Bill James is a very well-known baseball writer who also writes uh, some great true crime stuff. Yeah, we just referenced his book, Popular Crime. Uh, talking about Lizzie Borden. Exactly. Um, So James points out, given the general rates of this kind of crime, of family murders, there should have been one one murder of a family across all three of these states during these two years. Mm -hmm. Instead, you have 11 axe murders of black families specifically during these two years. It's just a crazy statistical... You know. Yeah, the, the bar graph looks very wildly out of control, I'm sure. Exactly. Uh, now, these 11 murders have come to be known, uh, these 11 crimes, I should say, because in each one, of course, more than one person was murdered. There are a total of 35 victims here. 
These 11 crimes have come to be known as the Clementine Barnabet murders, after the only person who was ever punished for any of them. Or, uh, they're also known more colorfully and for reasons that will become clear, as the Church of Sacrifice murders. Oh, wow. That's pretty metal. Uh, Now, Clementine Barnabet, the not hero, but the main character of our story here, uh, was 18 years old in 1911 when our uh, well, our story, I guess, will begin in 1909. But she's 18 years old when she comes onto the scene in this story in 1911. So she's a teenage girl, which is already very different than anyone we've really dealt with. Is she white? Nope, she's black. Well, that's also interesting. I was expecting this to be a hate crime. She was a slender teen girl with smooth skin and big doe eyes. She was described as pixie-faced with a rounded but small and delicate chin. Um, in Bill James's words, she's kind of cute. Mm-hmm. Her name's Clementine. She's a little orange. Yeah. She's... Those are literally called cuties. Who could seem more harmless than this little uh, pixie-like 18-year-old girl? Mm-hmm. Well, in order to answer that question, we're going to have to take a few steps back first. So we're going to start on Saturday, November 13th, 1909, in Rain, Louisiana, at the home of Edna Opelousas. Mm. Around 1 a.m. that Friday night, Saturday morning, neighbors heard screams coming from Edna Opelousas' house. As they ran to her aid, neighbors and witnesses found Edna dead from a blow with an axe. There were three children in the house, aged four to nine, who papers at the time recorded were Edna's kids. Mm -hmm. Um, They were still alive when neighbors got there, but they were mortally wounded. They succumbed to their injuries later. So they had been attacked too. Yeah. Gosh. Now, just a side note here. According to Bill James, who did a little bit of uh, census record pulling, uh, there was an Edme Opelousas, who was born in Louisiana in 1882 and had three younger sisters. Mm Mm-hmm. So it could be just name confusion, and this was Edme. Mm-hmm. He seems to think it is. He refers to her as Edme for the rest, but Edme or Edna Opelousas. Anyway, that morning, George Washington, not that George Washington. <laughs> he would have been very old. Was arrested in connection with the murders. His wife and daughter would be later be arrested too as accomplices, uh, but they were later released. And I think Mr. Washington was as well. The Rain City Marshal told the press that the victims were all stabbed with a knife as well as being hit in the head with an axe. Hmm. At the time the Marshal had the knife, they'd recovered it from the crime scene, he believed it to originate in nearby Crowley, and he was going to go there to figure out whose it was. Mr. Crowley. say yes, the home of evil. (laughs) Now, as Bill James points out here, uh, two weapons, both the knife and the axe, probably means two murderers. Unless you're really going nuts with two hands. Right. Uh, And this actually is weirdly on the path between the previous, like before this night in 1909, Man from the Train murder, as as sketched out by Bill James, and the next one, and it falls like directly in the middle of the two in geography and in time. Mm. And like if you Google mapped a route from one crime, from the previous crime to the next one, it would go through Rain, Louisiana. 
Um, but since there were two murder weapons used, the Jameses just don't think this was the same guy because he just hit people in the head. Sometimes he would shoot people, but he primarily hit them in the head with an axe. He never stabbed anybody. Right. And I forget because, you know, we haven't talked about this in a year, but did um, Paul Miller, the man from the train, did he ever kill anyone that was African-American or... I I feel like usually e- killers either stick to their own races or they're killing as a hate crime. I think he was indiscriminate. I, there were definitely white families, like the family in Velisco was white. Right. And I'm pretty sure there were black families as well. Yeah. Okay. So it's possible. But again, the stabbing, uh, Bill James's interpretation of the stabbing and then the axe is there were two people there. Mm-hmm. And the man from the train only worked alone. Mm-hmm. Almost two years later. I mean, people have two hands. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let you wonder what the connection is for now. But almost two years later, on January 24th, 1911, in Crowley, Louisiana, where that knife was believed to have originated right next door to Rain, Walter Byers, his wife, and his child were all bludgeoned to death with an axe. Mm. The family was discovered on January 27th three days later, after the smell from inside the house started to reach neighbors. Oh, God. They found that the murderer had broken in through a back window. And um, you want to talk about man from the train connections? I mean, this is one that's in a major lumber producing region. Mm -hmm. It's down south. It's during the winter. Um, And there's like kind of an appropriate time and distance gap again to the next probable Paul Miller crime, which is the Cassaway family murder. By the way, go and listen to our Man from the Train (laughs) series if you want to hear about all those horrible crimes. Well, also, he killed along a train line or along train lines, train stops and things like that. Hence the name. So all of Clementine's supposed murders also occurred pretty much along a train line. Yeah. So that's interesting. Now, the Byerses were well-liked and had no enemies in town, and the local black community was apparently really shaken up by this crime. Yeah, I Uh, could imagine. Quoting from the Galveston Daily News on February 1st, Leading Negro citizens have held a mass meeting and adopted resolutions declaring that they will give every assistance in their power to help the officers in finding the guilty persons. So there were like organized neighborhood efforts. Um, Dozens were arrested and questioned by the police, but at the, end, at the end of the day, there were no answers and no one was prosecuted for this crime. In the press or even in the investigation, were people linking this to the previous murder? No, not to my knowledge. This is, remember, over a hundred years, similar to Lizzie Borden. This yes. is over a hundred years ago, so we don't have like universal newspaper access. But uh, no, we don't see any connections being made. And there was year and a half, almost two years between the two crimes. Mm -hmm. Now, on February 24th of 1911, exactly one month after the Byers murder, Alexandra Andrus and his wife Mimi, their three-year-old son Joaquin, and their baby Agnes were all murdered with the blade of an axe. Sharp side. So not bludgeoned. Not bludgeoned to death, but cut in Lafayette, Louisiana which is about 25 miles from Crowley. They were described as a quiet and respected family by the newspapers who lived in an isolated cabin by the river near the railroad track. I'd have to imagine that at least the adults in these killings are being killed in their sleep. Yeah. Um, the 
Well, the pattern in all of the, and again, check out our Man from the Train series, the pattern in those crimes was always the, typically the man in the house would be hit in the head first, and mm-hmm. if you hit someone in the head when they're sleeping with an axe, they don't yell out, and then you just hit the next person, and, and he would go from room to room. Well, I'm also thinking, especially if it is a young woman, a, a frail, <laughs> slender woman, um, you know, she doesn't want to get into a tussle with like the man of the house, at least. She certainly doesn't. This is a, uh, as you and I'm sure the listener are thinking, this is a crazy series of crimes for, a at this point, a 16 to 18-year-old girl to be committing. Yeah, I played ice hockey in <laughs> high school. Uh, that was when I was my most slender and muscular, and I couldn't imagine ever being able to kill anyone with, I mean, obviously, I, I couldn't imagine that. But, like, physically, I feel like I'd get stuck or, like, I couldn't do it. Sometimes the way you look at me, I'm pretty sure you could get it done. (laughs) Well, I've got a lot more weight behind me now. Mimi's mother said she was alerted by her son, Mimi's brother. And uh, when she arrived, she found all of the doors of the house locked. But the kitchen, except for the kitchen door, which the killer had left open. Hmm. The Lafayette advertiser said, the man and woman were taken up by the murderer and placed on their knees beside the bed the woman's arm over the man's shoulder as if in the attitude of prayer. The baby was then placed beside the mother in the bed. So this is all post-mortem. Yeah. This is like a like a weird tableau. Yeah, someone had put them in this kind of prayer scene. Weird. And the bloody axe was left on the floor at the foot of the bed. The bodies were still warm when they were found, indicating that the crime had happened very late at night slash, you know, into yeah. the morning hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, Now, the person arrested for this crime was a man, a local Lafayette man named Raymond Barnabet. Okay. Barnabet was in his 40s, and he lived nearby with his girlfriend, Dina Porter, and his kids, 18-year-old daughter Clementine, and son Zephyrin, or Farron, who was a younger teenager. Zephyrin. Raymond also had an older daughter named Pauline, who was grown and lived with her own family in Rain, Louisiana, oddly enough. Mm. And another well, son. I don't know if it's that odd. And another son named Tatit, who was in jail at the time. Um, Bill and Rachel James, I, they don't say why they think this, mm-hmm. but they believe that Tatit was in jail for homosexual activity. Um, so there, there must be some evidence they saw of that that they don't share. I haven't seen evidence of that myself. But mm-hmm. anyway, uh, we don't know why exactly he was in jail. Um, but it's possible that that's how the sheriff knew of the Barnabet family. Because, hey, we've got this kid in jail here. Let's go right. talk to his dad. Uh, in any case, the family shared a house with the Stevens family, who occupied the main part of the building, while the Barnabets lived in the uh, smaller part. Mm-hmm. Uh, Raymond's family were all called by the prosecution to testify at his trial, and they all told very different stories. Dina, his girlfriend, said that Raymond had left the house around 7 p.m. and said uh, he was taking the train to Broussard. And then he came back in the early morning complaining about how his supper hadn't been saved for him and that he had left his pipe on the train. And he was mad about that, too. And everyone's got to hear about it. Um, She added that under questioning, that is, that Raymond had once tried to kill her with an axe in a jealous rage. Oh. Or at least threatened to. Okay. Uh, when she was called, Clementine agreed that her father had left in the evening and come home early in the morning with loud complaints about his supper. 
I think she actually said he was bitching about his supper. Well, sounds like he was. But Clementine said he arrived home smoking his pipe and covered in gore and brains, yelling about how he had just murdered the whole Andrus family and threatening to do the same to his own. Okay, different different vibe here. She said he threw the bloody clothes at her, and the next day she gave uh, the gore-soaked rags to Mrs. Stevens, their neighbor and landlady, to wash. You don't do that yourself? Apparently not, not <laughs> according to her story. Okay. Um, then Farron was called to the stand, and he told more or less Clementine's version of events. But for the weird quibble that he was totally sure his father had come home without his pipe. So it's not clear if there was like a newspaper report at the time that we don't have anymore that said a pipe had been found at the crime scene or yeah. like why all this pipe talk keeps being brought up. But everybody weighs in on this smoking pipe for reasons that are not clear to a modern audience. Okay. So the next people called to the stand, obviously, were Mrs. Stevens and her daughter Adele, the neighbors. Mrs. Stevens said she had rose with the sun that day, and neither she nor Adele had ever heard any commotion coming from the Barnabet house. Clementine had never brought over any wash, and certainly she would have remembered a shirt covered in brains and blood and gore. Yeah, weird thing to lie about. Adele said she had knocked on the Barnabet's door to tell them about the murder, which they reacted to with the appropriate kind of shock and solemnness. Mm Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Stevens added that Clementine and Farron were shifty characters with, quote, <laughs> bad reputations. Oh. Uh, as if to imply that nothing they said should be taken at face value. It, I should add that it's really not standard procedure for a witness in court to testify without being asked, like apropos of nothing, to just volunteer that another witness in the courthouse is not reliable. Mm-hmm. Um, but she felt the need to do so. Okay. So, Clementine... Was almost certainly lying. Well, she's lying about something. That's that's how it seems to me. Um, but she was apparently a good storyteller, and the jury liked her, and they convicted her father of murder in October of 1911. Wow. Um, except that weeks later, Raymond Barnabet was actually granted a new trial for a very odd procedural reason. This is probably a new one for you, Carrie. He had been drunk at his first one. During the trial. Yeah. On his second day in court, he had convinced another prisoner to smuggle him in some Spartan wine. I don't know if that means toilet wine or if it's just Mm -hmm. like a cheap kind of a wine, which he drank a whole bottle of on an empty stomach before he went into the courthouse. And so he was like blackout drunk one of the days in court. Well, if that's a loophole, then why doesn't every defending attorney get their client wasted. Well, it's a weird way to get a new trial, and it's not standard procedure, uh, to state the obvious. But maybe there were some other things going on that had convinced the Justice Department, you know, some in the Justice Department that there was a miscarriage happening here, Mm -hmm. and that this guy should probably, probably should get another trial. Uh, And part of that could have been that while Raymond was in prison, more similar murders were happening. Remember, he was convicted in October 1911, and while he was serving the beginning of a prison sentence, on November 26th of 1911, Norbert and Azima Randall and their children, six-year-old Renee, five-year-old Norbert Jr., and two-year-old Agnes, a second baby named Agnes. Mm. Uh, They actually had another daughter as well, but she was staying uh, with an uncle. But there was a neighbor boy named Albert Scythe who was also present. 
And he was killed too? Yes. Mm. Norbert, Azima, and Agnes all lay in the bed by the door, covered in mosquito netting that had been torn in half by the first axe blow. Mm -hmm. Norbert had been shot in the head once. And all three... Oh, okay. So we're mixing up weapons again. And all three of them had been bludgeoned with the blunt side of an axe. Hmm. The other three children were tangled up together in the bed they had all been sharing, um, where they had been bludgeoned mostly in their sleep. I think this is the one where there was one like child-sized bloody handprint on the ground that suggested one of the kids had maybe woke up and struggled briefly. Mm -hmm. But most of this family was bludgeoned in their sleep, it seemed like. Mm -hmm. The axe was leaning against the wall near the foot of the children's bed, and it had been carefully cleaned of blood. So is the perpetrator using the family axe in all of these cases? Definitely not in all of these cases. You'll hear uh, uh, one later on. I'll point it out when we get there where it was clear that they had been walking up to the house with one axe and exchanged it in a neighbor's yard. Okay. Like the axe that had done the crime was a neighbor's axe and in that neighbor's yard there was a strange axe. I see. So it's somebody who is probably planning on picking up if they see an axe they like on the way they pick it up Mm -hmm. before seven the next morning that older daughter who was staying with an uncle returned home Mm. opened the door saw the tableau i just described to you and ran down the street screaming it's like the keddy murders i mean so horrific when it's the children that make the discoveries As the daughter ran down the street, screaming and crying, from the neighboring Guidry house, where she worked as a domestic, Clementine Barnabet was watching from the porch and laughing. Mm. Now, of course, that generated some neighborhood talk. Yeah. Which reached police who uh, did some search of the Guidry house and of Clementine's home and found a latch to the Guidry home caked in blood, they said, as well as a dress apron, and underwear in Clementine's room, covered in blood and brains. So basically, she had come back to this place that she worked. She's Her hands are covered in blood, so she's like unlatching the door with her bloody hand and getting it all over the place. In the police uh, image of this, absolutely. <sighs> really subtle. Okay. Hours after her arrest, Clementine was laughing at a judge from the witness stand where she was called in to explain herself and saying, yes, she had killed the Randalls, she had killed the Andresses, and she had killed some family in rain. She didn't remember their names. And I'm going to kill you too. Now, there was another local colorful character who was present near the Randall murder, and that was King Harrison. <laughs> okay. He was, um, Bill James describes him, I like this, as like a Johnny Appleseed of churches. He was like a preacher who had started up a bunch of branches of the Christ-sanctified Holy Church um, all the way up the railroad line. Mm-hmm. And right at the moment, he was based in Lafayette and, and preaching. Azima Randall, one of the victims in this most recent crime, was a member of King Harrison's church. And Clementine Barnabet was as well. She was actually a deaconess. Okay. Which isn't a term that's used by a lot of religious organizations. And when it is, it's usually for um, older. It's deaconess. We don't, I don't know. We don't know what what her role was in the church or mm-hmm. um, uh, what that meant exactly. After her arrest, Clementine claimed that she was the leader of a sect within Christ-sanctified Holy Church 
known as the Church of Sacrifice, mm. and that she had killed the Randalls for disobeying the church's orders. What were the orders? She wasn't clear on that point. Okay. She also told police that she had a magical voodoo charm that she'd gotten from a local witch doctor that would protect her from being punished. Okay, I think we're mixing religions here a little bit. Um, we definitely are, and I should note that the Church of Sacrifice angle is only from this initial kind of confession blurt when Clementine is first arrested. She, she, she doesn't stick with that through the rest of... She drops the Church of Sacrifice entirely from later accounts, and King Harrison appears to have nothing to do with these murders. I mean, it's a, it's a big claim. Yeah, um, but regardless, there was this... There was finally an explanation to some of the religious-seeming symbolism that existed. I mean, you know, the family being arranged in that prayer tableau and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Did she arrange any other bodies? Like we haven't. That? We haven't had any other bodies arranged yet. Okay. And uh, newspapers, especially white newspapers across the country, were fascinated with this story and breathlessly printed the tale of voodoo cult sacrifice and secret churches, complete with usually invented dialogue written in, like, insulting dialect, you know? Yeah, of course. Um, meanwhile, for two months in jail, Clementine spoke to no one after those first kind of almost frantic, you know, spurts of, of, of information. Mm-hmm. Um, she spoke to no one like a sphinx in the words of the <laughs> oh. uh, works Proge- progress administration account that was written in the thirties. Um, she did occasionally ask for her mother, but other than that fell basically silent for the next two months. Meanwhile, on January 19th, 1912 with both Clementine and Raymond Barnabet in jail, Merle Warner and her three kids, Pearl, Harriet, and Gary, ages nine, eight, and seven, were all killed with an axe in Crowley, Louisiana. Once again, the town where the knife had been uh, gotten in the first murder. So do we think this is the man from the train and it's just a crazy coincidence? I don't think this one is. This is just another axe murderer? Yeah, I think... Killing a whole family? I, that's a lot. I th- Bill James doesn't think any of these were committed by the man from the train, although he thinks two of them could have been. Mm-hmm. And I think those two fit pretty well mm-hmm. um, in his time timeline and everything. In fact, there was one point where we said, and then he didn't kill anyone for like seven months. So Bill James says maybe he went to prison. But one of these is like right in the middle of that mm-hmm. span. So he could have just gone down to Louisiana and killed a family there. Um. In any case, Clementine and Raymond Barnabet were both in jail when Merle Warner and Pearl, Harriet, and Gary were all killed with an axe. The four victims had all been moved after death to lie together in bed, and the bloody axe was dropped at the scene. So we have another diorama. That's right. And in this case, police were beginning to think they saw a pattern, and they went out and arrested Farron Barnabet thinking he must be acting on the orders of his father and sister. Let's just put the whole family in jail, see what happens. And the lie would be put to that pretty quickly, because that same night, just after Farron was arrested, there was another murder. Another axe murder. Yeah. (laughs) Big time. And we'll get to that one after the break. Oh, boy. Hello, this is Dr. Grande. 
the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back. When last we left you, another family had just been murdered in northwestern Louisiana, this time in Crowley, where Merle Warner, Crowley. Merle Warner and her three kids' lives had been taken with an axe. Police, who already believed they had two murderers in prison in the persons of Clementine and Raymond Barnabet, now arrested Raymond's son and Clementine's brother, Farron, assuming he was acting on the orders of the other two Barnabets to continue the crime spree. But... Almost no sooner had Farron been put into prison than the Broussard family was murdered in Lake Charles, Louisiana, about 75 miles from Lafayette. Felix Broussard and his wife, whose name we unfortunately don't have, and their kids, 8-year-old Margaret, 6-year-old Alberta, and 3-year-old Louis, were all bludgeoned to death with the blunt side of an axe. The murderer came through a back window... Not the first time in this series, I think, that a murderer came through the back window. Um, Felix's axe, Felix Broussard, the father, his axe was still in the kitchen. The murder weapon had been brought into the house and was left bloody under the kid's bed. Okay. There was also a bucket placed under the kid's heads to catch their blood, and it appeared to have been moved there after first catching the parents' blood. To what end? I don't know. This is another return of religious symbolism, too, because inside the kitchen door, written in what police believed was pencil, was the phrase, When he maketh inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Next to it were the words, Human Five. Hmm. Possibly a reference to the five victims inside the house. Not really sure. This is often, and by often I mean basically always, <laughs> misreported as a biblical quotation but it's actually a misquote of a biblical quotation that is taken from uncle tom's cabin oh interesting so the actual passage is when he maketh inquisition for blood he remembereth them he forgetteth not the cry of the humble but in uncle tom's cabin when this passage is quoted it drops the he remembereth them mm. and that's the version that was written on the inside of this door Interesting. I've never seen anyone point that out except Bill and Rachel James, but um, interesting to note that, uh, I don't know, if this was intended to be a Bible verse, it wasn't by someone who was holding a Bible in their other hand or somebody who knew the chapter and verse. You know? Well, it's like you're quoting the Pulp Fiction version of uh, the shepherd. Oh, yes. Uh, the, 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 the Valley of Darkness. Yes. The tyranny of evil men. But not. You know, the is, actual Bible. Ezekiel 5, 7, 25, 17. Is that real or? No. Yeah. No, so. it's a made up verse. I mean, there is a it's book of good. Ezekiel, but that passage is made up. Mm -hmm. 
Clementine Barnabet would later confess to committing the Broussard murder, among many, many others, even though she was in prison at the time. Meanwhile, uh, newspapers around the world were now seizing on this series of apparently religious murders. Mm-hmm. A commonly reported uh, fictionalized element was that there was a biblical connection to the number five, wherein the killer was only killing families with five people in them, which... What's biblical about that? I mean, I could see three. Or six or seven. Yeah. But five is notably not really a biblical number. Even four is like, four is at least a natural in craps. Yeah, okay. Five is is nothing. Um, Cinco de Mayo. But not only that, this is the only murderer so far in this series where there's five victims, I think. Mm -hmm. The rest are like four, there's a couple threes. There's a six later, but uh, they're not all fives by any stretch. Mm-hmm. Now, by this time, the police had largely lost the trust of the local black community because of their failure to make any progress in these other murders, uh, which people didn't really buy the uh, teenage girl and her father who had been arrested, who were saying they did all of them. Um, and there were a lot less. There was a lot less organized public cooperation with the Broussard investigation because. People were kind of like, well, forget you guys. We know what you're going to do at this point. Yeah, it's fair enough. Shortly after the Broussards were killed, Farron Barnabet was released, and King Harrison, the preacher at the Sanctification Church, was briefly arrested. Okay. But then he was released too, because again, I truly don't think he had anything to do with these crimes. Mm-hmm. Now, on February 19th of 1912... So Clementine and her father are still in prison. Her brother's out. Her other brother is in prison, but for unrelated reasons. Mm-hmm. Okay. February 19th of 1912. Once again, almost exactly a month from the previous murder. This time in Beaumont, Texas, 60 miles away from Lake Charles, where the last murder had taken place. But still along the train line. Still along the train line. Hattie Dove, who was separated from her husband and her three teenage children, including an oldest daughter who had just moved back in after separating from her husband, Hmm. were all bludgeoned to death with the back of an axe in their sleep. (sighs) No one would ever be prosecuted for for that crime. Again, no one was ever prosecuted for any of these crimes, except for Clementine Barnabet. Hmm. But she's still in jail, so there's no way she could have done it. And at this time, uh, the prosecution is preparing for a grand jury on Clementine. In January 1912, her skirt and shirtwaist, the ones they'd gotten out of her closet, were tested to see if the blood on them was menstrual in nature. See, they could do it then. Um, all the, well, actually... Less than 20 years later. Bill and Rachel James say... Uh, we would like to know what their methodology was on this. Oh, I'm probably sure it was like, well, it's a little chunky. Exactly. You know? Yeah. You know? Um, so, well, that's a well-spotted point there. But um, he said it wasn't menstrual blood. He said it was blood that, quote, flowed from the wound of a living body. Interesting. I mean, I could see maybe recognizing brains or other matter, but I don't know how you determine they're different aside from like scientific examination which they weren't able to do at this time it's not like he's doing a spectrographic analysis yeah no um what he was able to do was find that the blood type from a pillow found at the randall house matched the blood on the clothes in clementine's closet oh wow 
That's more than I assumed they could do at that point. Well, blood typing had been pretty recently established. Yeah. And, um, you know, the Jameses compare it to DNA in the OJ case where, like, the it's public so didn't new. really get it. Yeah. People are a little mistrustful of it. Well, the opposite, actually. Maybe the prosecution was able to use it more effectively than they would be able to if the public understood because they were able to go like, look, the blood type from this matches that. And the public doesn't understand at the time that there are like four total blood types. Yeah, I mean, that might be true. Everything I've read about the O.J. Simpson case, and we'll definitely get to that at some point, probably soon, um, is that they actually had a, a very difficult time discussing or, or explaining everything to the jury because the jury had just no basis to understand DNA and how evidence like can be found from DNA. Right. And so, I mean, how do you explain that if you don't, if you've never even encountered that in science class? But in this case, the chemist could just go, the blood matches. Yeah. Which actually meant the blood types matched and, and it's just worth noting, this is the house, remember, where there had been a um, visiting child? Yeah. So you've got three different unrelated gene pools in the house. Well, do we know what blood type it was? Because there's one blood type I think that's like very, very common. And then there's one that's very, very not common. We, so that would kind of help figure we it out. don't know what blood type it was just because it was over 110 years ago. Yeah. Uh, we only know the type matched. Okay. But also that there were likely multiple blood types in the Randall house. Yes. And Clementine, I don't know, you probably got at least a coin flip chance of Clementine's blood matching one of them. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, Clementine was meanwhile now filling notebooks of confessions of her alleged crimes, which she now said started in rain in 1909 when she was just 16. Clementine's words. She's a prodigy. I went to my sister, who lived in who lived at Rain, near the OG Railroad Depot, and later during the, the night... The original Gangsta Railroad Depot? It must be old, I don't know, Old Grand or <laughs> something. The, the, the name of the railroad company. And later during the night, went uptown, disguised as a man, and securing the axe in a yard near the cabin where I killed the mother and four children. Upon entering the house, I struck the woman on her right temple and killed her instantly. One of the children was awakened by the noise. And before he could raise his head from the pillow, I struck him a blow somewhere near the left ear. Then I struck the other two. I left the man's clothes, which I wore in the house, and left the house in woman's clothes, returned to my sister's house, and later during the same night, I boarded a night train for Lafayette, arriving here about midnight. It was about nine when I killed them. So does this all follow? The wounds and everything like that? You know what's interesting... I don't have specific hit locations from the newspaper accounts. I just know that these people were hit in the head. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to tell from that whether her like, you know, left temple stuff and, and all that is accurate. Um, well, it just seems like, you know, if there was a left temple wound, it's more indicative that she might have done it than if there's just no temple wounds at all. Yeah, it's it's it has been pointed out that no one seemed to ask any follow-up questions during any of Clementine's confessions. Hmm. Just like, oh, you did it, huh? Great. I mean, that still kind of sticks around to this day. Like, well, we got her. At this point, Clementine's sister Pauline was arrested in rain because police said she oh, was... they got the whole family now. Because police said she was acting suspicious when they accosted her about the confession. 
I mean, your whole family's been arrested for murder. I'd be acting a little shifty, too. Uh, Clementine also said a friend named Irene had assisted her in murdering the Randalls. Damn, she's calling everyone out. And police uh, couldn't find this Irene, and then Clementine helped them identify her, and it turned out to be so this... So helpful. It turned out to be this woman named Valena Mabry, whose name was not Irene, but Clementine was like, yeah, no, that's Irene. She helped me. Zanny the nanny. And this lady, Valena, was like, I don't know what she's talking about, and she was ultimately released without prosecution, which is true of all of the more than half dozen people that Clementine named as accomplices <laughs> over the course of this trial. Okay. Murders were still continuing. And on March 27th, 1912 in Glidden, Texas, and this one might be a stretch and might be a man from the train murder um, because it's 150 miles away from Beaumont, the site of the last murder. So I'm mentioning it because it is often tied in with this series of murders, these Church of Sacrifice murders, these Clementine Barnabet murders. Um, it's certainly, these five people are counted in the 35. But there's no way she's committed any murder since she got put in jail. No. So why are they attributed to her or connected to her in any way? Even if she is, you know, confessing to them, there's no way that she could do it. Well, her accomplices are still killing while she's in prison. Yeah, but even her brother... I mean, she had no family out of prison for a moment there, and at least one or two of the murders happened during that time. Mm -hmm. You might be right, Carrie. I am right. <coughs> what do you mean? Well, maybe we should hear what Clementine has to say, because she, she finally got her chance to address the grand jury in Lafayette Jail, April 1st, 1912. And according to a reporter with the New Orleans Item, Clementine told the court that she and her friends had been in New Iberia, a nearby town just south, when they met an, quote, old Negro who told us he could sell us conges. What's that? She spells that, or the court reporter spells it, C-A-N-D-J-A-S. Um, like candies, maybe? I think it means, it seems to mean conjure bag. Conjures, oh. like a, a conjure bag. So this is like a, like a sachet. Yeah. Um, this, quote, old Negro promised that the conjure bag would allow Clementine and her friends to, quote, do as we pleased and we would never be detected, and we would be protected from the hands of the law by the mere fact of these conjures being in our possession. And she goes, you know what, I, what would please me? Axe murder. Let's do it. Yeah, I guess. That's crazy. So this man, this old man, Joseph Thibodeau, was arrested by the sheriff and hauled into court where Clementine, uh, uh, where Thibodeau said he didn't sell charms. He was a root doctor. You got any conjures? Um, and Clementine said, yes, you said I wouldn't be arrested. And look, here I am in jail. I'm going to leave a terrible review on Yelp. So this guy said he didn't sell charms. He was a, a natural doctor, but he did read palms and tell fortunes. And one of the remedies he would prescribe people was that he would sell them a piece of paper with 25 letters written on it in five lines. And then if you were feeling bad, you would rip off a letter and crumple it up and swallow it. And if you were holding this piece of paper, you were magically protected from harm. But I, but he, but he, is, but he insisted it wasn't a charm or a magic spell. It was just a natural remedy. Just eating some paper. Yeah. You know, you know how I do. Anyhow, according to Clementine, uh, this guy said he had seen her before, but he never sold her no conjures. Clementine had bought the charm, allegedly, for $3. And then she and her friends went back to Lafayette and started trying to plan what to get away with. 
she said before they had the bag, they never thought about murder, but it was like, well... Now that, that we've secured the bag. That's what we should try to get away with, I guess. So they drew straws. <laughs> never underestimate the power of boredom. So the kids drew straws to decide who would be the first to swing the axe. Clementine drew the short straw. And while she was in rain on a trip to visit her sister, she said she killed the Opelousas family, quote, because they had left a light burning inside as they slept and I could see them sleeping. The idea of going from no crime to family annihilation for your first go at it is she's, nuts. And she's 16. And then she says she waited around for two years before she did this again. I don't think so. But uh, so back to her story. Clementine said she and her friends waited. And when they weren't arrested, they figured, I guess we have carte blanche. Let's kill some more people. Why wouldn't they just rob a bank or something? Well, that's what you would do if any of this was true. Next, she confessed to the murder of the Byers family, the ones in Crowley. Uh-huh. She said, in Crowley, I entered the house with one of the women. while the other kept watch. These are her accomplices. Oh. And as I had the axe in my hand, I committed the murders. I struck the man first, and just as I did so, the woman woke up. I struck her a blow in the face with the butt end of the axe and felled her. I then struck her once or twice to be sure she was dead. Once it was done, it was an easy matter to get rid of the two small children. We thought it was better to kill them than to leave orphans, as they would suffer. No. No? No. Why? Just just bad reasoning. No. Oh, that is bad reasoning. I thought you meant no, they they didn't it's very this. much you know if if i can't have you nobody can kind of vibes yeah i think these victims were all found in, in bed so the thing about the woman getting up and then her hitting her with the back of the axe doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't ring that true to me a lot of this is not ringing true uh, oh really uh, yeah well let's go to the andrus murder then the one that her father was arrested for for this one too clementine said the night was chosen because the police were all busy with a municipal election, which they had been that night, which is actually the same as George Harry Storrs, by the way, if you remember that case. And with Lizzie Borden, all the police were at the fair. That's right. <laughs> um, but she, so Maybe, she, maybe, and this is just a thought, uh, law enforcement, maybe don't all go to like one place at one time together. Because it's, it's a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she said the night had been chosen carefully, but she said the victims were once again random. When we reached the railroad crossing, we saw a light burning in a cabin near Ramagosa's store. We decided that was a good place, so we went there. Myself and one of the women entered the house, and I struck Andras first, then his wife, and afterwards his two small children, one of whom was an infant in the cradle near the bed. We had overlooked him until he woke and began to cry. I turned and struck him in the forehead, killing him instantly. She that... She said she then hung around to watch Alexandra's brother find the bodies. And she also claimed that she personally helped wash and prepare these bodies for burial, which just can't be true. Right. But my question here is, like, what is she saying her motivation is? You know, if she's trying to get us to believe this whole thing about the conjuring satchel and whatever... Maybe you do that once, maybe twice, just to see if you can get away with it if you're a psychopath, right? But, mm-hmm. like, why do you keep on killing people? Why? <laughs> um, well, if I can... Like, I don't know. If I can quote from the resume of the case written in 1912, she was very self-contradictory. 
sometimes indicating that she had assistance in the murders and often boasting of having committed them, especially the Lafayette crimes, alone. She said she had used a gun only once, and that was when she shot Randall after he was dead. From her account, which was vile and repulsive, it was gleaned that Clementine was an unnatural moral pervert who at times had strong desires to fondle people, and that when she had killed their victims, indulged her passions to her heart's content. Because Clementine said that she uh, fondled these all people, fondled the victims, uh, quote, this isn't a direct quote, but men, women, and children and babies, all of them, she said she fondled for sexual gratification after death. Well, I guess that is a motivation. Not one that women not cite a whole lot for murder. Barely ever. So, interesting. Um, she did give less detail on the murder of the Randalls. She said that after a church celebration, she had picked up an axe on the way through a neighbor's yard. She said she saw police on the walk to the Randalls' house and also saw King Harrison. And she said she told Harrison to avoid the area tonight because <laughs> there would be lots of police around. Very thoughtful. By the way, King Harrison was asked about this, and he testified that the night of the murder of the Randall family, he did see Clementine, and she did warn him that there had been a f- street fight in the area and to avoid the area because there would be a lot of police. Hmm. Clementine said she then broke into the Randall home, shot the father in the chest with the, with a gun she had stolen from her brother Tatit, I guess borrowed, he was in jail. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was at this point, I think, when she made that claim about quote, caressing all of her victims. Okay. Over the course of the grand jury testimony, Clementine confessed to murdering 18 people with her own hands. But the grand jury only charged her with the murder of Azima Randall. Uh, We can assume that part of that is because she clearly didn't commit some of the things she could... Certainly. She definitely couldn't have committed the ones when she was in jail. Right. So obviously, obviously you're not going to charge her with those. But they charged her. It's also, we've talked about this on this podcast before. Especially in the old days, standard operating procedure is to charge you with one of the murders in a string so that if you get away with it, we can always charge you with the second one. We're Mm -hmm. not worried about double jeopardy. It's like a loophole. Mm -hmm. Newspapers all over the country were still breathlessly covering this like crazy string of apparently voodoo cult murders committed by a 18 year old girl. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the San Francisco call on April 3rd and uh, apologies for the attitudes of the time. Oh boy. Clementine Barnabet, aged 19, a mulatto, told a story here today, which poli- which the police authorities say clears the mystery, veiling the night assassinations of 35 Negroes in Louisiana and Texas. From Clementine's story, it appears she led a mysterious Negro cult. The members I'm of- sure they were loving this. The members of which performed the rites of human sacrifice. The Negress confessed she, ki- oh boy. The- confessed she killed 17 victims with her own hands. It is believed that Clementine and her companions are degenerates and that their weakened (laughs) brains have evidently were affected by the exhortations they had heard in the Church of Sacrifice. Huh. Yeah, I mean, especially with prevailing opinions of racism of the time, I could see why this would be such a sensational thing to report on, you know? Yeah, because it's so others the whole community you're kind of of confirming your racist fears like see 
I'm not racist. It's true. Um, On April 8th, 1912, just after her official arraignment had been pushed back, Clementine told a reporter that three more families would be murdered in the vicinity of Lafayette in the near future, with a total of 12 victims. Mm -hmm. More murders in the vicinity followed. (laughs) Okay. The William Burton family, four people were killed in San Antonio, Texas on April 11th of 1912. The Alice Marshall family, three more people, were killed in Hempstead, Texas, on April 15th. Uh, there were survivors in that attack, uh, according to Bill James, but I, can't, I couldn't find any information on this murder hmm. whatsoever. And then after the trial, uh, the William Walmsley family, three people, were killed in Philadelphia, Missouri, on November 23rd of 1912. Missouri. Now, that is not 12 victims. It's a total of 10. Mm-hmm. But again, there were a couple of survivors, so maybe the, maybe these are the 12 people Clementine was talking about. I mean, do we not know that she was not necessarily in some sort of sacrifice cult, but she might have had accomplices that were carrying out these murders while she was in jail? Maybe. Who else is doing it? She named a lot of people as accomplices. And, and none of them pl- and, panned and, out. And they but were, someone's killing people. But Carrie, they were all black and the police hauled them in and found no reason to keep them no i know obviously they're not like but who's doing it because it's not clementine it's not her dad right well let's let's get through the trial and then we can talk about it okay because in october of 1912 it was time for clementine to finally go before a judge and jury now the week before she was examined by a team of medical professionals And court documents record that those medical professionals found her, quote, morally depraved, unusually ignorant, and of a low grade of mentality, but not deficient in such a manner as to constitute her imbecile or idiot. And thus, Clementine was fit for trial. The library is open. Yeah, they they read her. They read her deep. Yikes. That feels racially tinged too, right? Tinged. Dunked. (laughs) Soaked. Like a donut. Um, Clementine's three-man defense team argued that her confessions were unreliable, in many places flat-out untrue. But did you clock that she said she had, specifically said she had shot Mr. Randall in the chest, uh, but he was shot in the head. Whoops. Before death, and she said she had done it after death. Um, They argued her confessions were unreliable and were the product of a bad childhood, and that the clothes on the crime scene, this is interesting, I don't know. I don't have evidence one way or the other. This is from 110 years ago. Her defense team said that the clothes from Clementine's room had been bundled with clothes from the Randall crime scene. It's like, oh, this is all stuff from that murder. And it was all bundled together. And that's how the blood got on it. Hmm. But in that case, I don't know why you took the blood, the clothes from her room in the first place. Right. Unless you had evidence to make you take the clothes, which is what the, the evidence was the blood. Right. Well, the lawyers... It's uh, all a cycle. The lawyers also suggested that the chemist was in on it all from the start and was lying on behalf of the state. They also, obviously, tried to have Clementine's confessions stricken from the record, but that did not happen because Clementine insisted they be included. No, I think I said some great stuff in there. I don't want it to be cut out. You're going you're gonna to cut all of it? Well, Clementine, <laughs> kill your darlings. Fascinating that both of the cases this month had evidence kind of 
turning on whether or not the person was menstruating at the time and if that's the blood. And whether their words should be allowed to be heard in court. Yes. They're incredibly incriminating words. Yeah. Self-incriminating. Yeah. Clementine was convicted of murdering Azima Randall, and only Azima Randall, on October 25th, 1912, and she was sentenced to life in prison the following day. Now, the Jameses point out, and you can add to this list if you want, Carrie, these are all of the things in favor of Clementine as the murderer. Mm -hmm. She was very near to two of the crime scenes when the murders happened. She acted inappropriately in the wake of the crimes. I think in a variety of ways, yes. She gave very detailed and elaborate confessions. Blood was found on her clothing after one of the crimes, and she was the first person to offer an explanation for the religious symbolism in in those crime scenes. I would also add that psychologically, it appears she's not doing great. Yeah. Well, that's a great explanation for the acting inappropriately. Mm Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean she's a murderer. It just means... No, but I don't know. Uh, Now, Clementine Barnabet was sentenced to life in prison. She escaped prison on July 31st, 1913. How? Just like a door was left open. She snuck out and ran out into the street. uh, Just for a few hours, and then she was caught and brought back. But does that leave the door open, metaphorically, for her escaping during her time committing murders and then going back um that's a great question i that that seems like a real stretch to me yeah yeah but you know and one more piece of the puzzle 10 years later just under 10 years later on april 28th 1923 clementine barnabet was released from prison after the justice system said she had had an operation that re- a surgical operation that returned her to normal functioning. A lobotomy? Lobotomies wouldn't be performed in the U.S. for another 10 years, so no. But I don't know what this... There's no indication of what this operation supposedly was, and once Clementine was released, she vanishes completely. What? So, I mean, the Occam's razor of that is once you get out of prison for this, you change your name and you move. Sure, but... What could the operation possibly have been then? I mean, as a woman, it could be a hysterectomy, right? But like, why would you, why would that determine that you could never kill again? (laughs) The only thing I could think of is something to do with her brain. Yeah. But again, yeah, we just know that lobotomies weren't a thing in the U.S. yet. Okay. So, really weird. Potentially, there's some very sad possible implications there, like a forced hysterectomy or or lobotomy or something. But there's also, I mean, look, I I think it's very unlikely that the state of Louisiana would have released her from prison after 10 years in any case if they thought that Clementine Barnabet had murdered 35 people. Uh, and, and I guess potentially if they thought well, she, sh- she couldn't have murdered all of the people, but potentially if they thought she had killed even one family with an ax, they wouldn't have let her out after 10 years in prison. So what happened? The beautiful answer to that question, Carrie, is we just don't know. I don't think it's beautiful at all. I think it's awful. We know. 
that something crazy was going on in the country in 1911 and 1912. Uh, Bill James compares it to like how there are fashions in, um, well, fashions in anything, but you know how crime goes through fashions too. Like it was all bank robberies in the 30s and 40s. Uh He's like, well, there's just something in the air, and and some it's of it's all about axes. Some of it's copycat behavior. Some of it is the uh, greater isolation we had at the time, but enough industrialization that people could get from place to place. I mean, I could see it being a, a weapon of convenience because, like in the Lizzie Borden case, and like in the Man from the Train murders, everyone basically had an axe at the time because they were split, splitting their own wood. Everyone had a wood pile out back because that was how everyone was heating their home. Right. But everyone also had knives. Yeah, but you know what doesn't... You, I mean, you, you have to stab someone with a knife a lot of times to, to kill them. I wouldn't know, Sean. Unless you're hitting major organs, you have to make them... You have to poke enough holes in them so that they bleed to death. Like Swiss cheese. Like Swiss cheese. But if you're hitting them in the head with an axe, I mean, one might really do it. Hmm. Hmm. Um... So yeah, but it, it, it was just this crazy explosion of axe murders, and my best guess would be that this is all this this is all in a pretty small area, right? This is probably the work of one or more, probably more spree killers. I think maybe we could guess that unrelated. Maybe we could guess that one or two of these was Paul Miller. We could guess that maybe one or two was Clementine. I think it's possible that the Andrus murder was committed by Raymond, maybe, or wasn't. Mm-hmm. But either way, that's a very intense situation for his teenage children to be thrown into. Mm-hmm. Just having a neighbor murdered, but then also your father is convicted of, of the crime. Police interrogate you, ask you to testify against your dad. Your dad is an abusive alcoholic who you don't like very much. Speak for yourself. Maybe Clementine, I mean, I think obviously something would snap in a lot of us at that point, but but the question is, did it snap enough that she then went to see what would happen if she hit a family a bunch of times in the head with an axe? Well, she was clearly very unwell, but it this seems like a lot of axe murderers to be in the same place at the same time. I think she committed between zero and four axe murders. I think she may have killed the Randall family. Mm-hmm. And if the blood was really on her clothes like if, if blood I mean, and brains not were even clothes. the clothes but like the latch the latch was covered in blood you're not going to just be touching things with a menstrual blood hand right so i feel that the randall family it's possible but i think again the church of sacrifice seems to have just been a red herring she threw out like in a panic at the beginning but why was she panicked? She was confessing to everything. There was no panic. She seemed perfectly fine with what she was saying and what she was doing. But she was also, like Carla Faye Tucker, telling stories of having orgasms as she murdered these people. She was. Did she say that or did she say she was just fondling everyone? No, she said, but, but she was sexually fondling them. It was, it was sexually stimulating for her. I think she's which, an, which is an, an also like another thing. Why would you, even if you're mentally ill, why would you say that about yourself? Because you're an edgelord. That's very... That's... I feel like people might see that as even worse than murder in a weird way. Yeah, but like, why did Damien Eccles act the way he acted after the West Memphis 3 murder? Yeah, I guess. 
I don't know. This is freaking weird. This is a weird story. This is a weird story. And I, I'm unfortunately, Carrie, I don't have anything else to tell you about it. What? Okay. That's the end. That's Clementine Barnabet. What do you think? I have no friggin' idea. Do you think she killed the Randall family? I think it's possible. Maybe her whole family had, you know, like her dad and her other brother, they had a crack at different things and maybe they were killing as a family in a way, but that still doesn't make sense for the people who were killed while all of them were in jail. You're absolutely right. And when the brother was released from jail, if there was any evidence, if he didn't have an alibi for these new murders that occurred, the police would have surely hauled him back in. So I don't know. I genuinely don't know. It's weird. It is weird. And I don't think all of these murders are part of the same. I don't think all of these murders are part of the same series. No, but that's crazy to me too. If it's not, this family or whatever um and it's not it's not anyone associated with the story like king harrison or anything and it's not paul miller then there's more at least one or two more spree axe murderers of families in the same general area it's either that or and tell me which one you think is scarier carrie or it was just kind of in the air and it was happening a lot i mean I think it's scarier if it's just a trend. Yeah, like if it's just like... like bell-bottoms. Yes. But you also see how that could... You see how that could be feasible, right? If like everything in the news reports is families being killed by axe murders. And well, it's like pe- it's like like you said, the bank robbers of the, the 30s and such, you know, they're being inspired by previous bank robbings and serial killers. I mean, we have documented evidence of some serial killers seeing news of other killers or, or you know, victims and in, in murders and being inspired to do it themselves. But it's just a very specific trend. But we shouldn't, lo- and we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that like Bill James points out about the man from the train generally, these aren't a common kind of crime. When people are killed, they're usually killed by people they know, usually a lover or a parent or a child. Yeah, so that's already out of the norm, just, you know, being a whole family being killed by a stranger. And then you have this other layer of, like, this specific kind of murder and all of the other ones happening at the same time. It's just a wild story. Now, in none of these stories do we have the unhooded lantern there's none of the really chill up your back well there's none of the man from the train obvious stuff in it none of the real uh but the the tableaus are pretty creepy that's a very red dragon oh it's it's definitely creepy those specifically i think there's no way they were committed by paul miller if he is in fact a, a serial killer no i think whoever's arranging the bodies like that those were at least one person yeah, the two arranged bodies and then also the one with the Bible verse written on the door. You're tempted to connect all three of those. But at least especially the arranged bodies. And could that have been, I mean, I don't want to sully a man's name, but could that have been King Harrison? He's like a preacher. He's very religious, you know? But we have no reason to suspect him no. except that Clementine mentioned him once. Yeah, and she's not trustworthy. No. Gosh, it's weird. But what, a, what a strange story. What Sean. a strange person. Aren't you aren't you glad you know about Clementine Barnabet? Yeah, I'm glad I don't know her, but I'm glad I know of her. <laughs> At one point, um 
Bill and Rachel James say like, you know, uh, uh, Clementine was uh, uh, confused. She was uh, uh, panicked and she was definitely a liar. Uh, and then in parentheses, but we kind of like her anyway. <laughs> <laughs> She's got moxie. That's for sure. She does have moxie. Um, so there you have it. Listener, Caroline, that is the story of Clementine Barnabet. And that is the end of Axe Murder Month for another year. Well, Axe Murder March, we hardly knew ye. Well, uh, I'm sure we'll return to the years of 1911 and 1912 for next Axe Murder Month because... (laughs) Something's in the air. Because something was in the air. And, uh... Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's a bad thing for that to be a trend in crime. But uh, at least 100 years later, it makes for more interesting stories than, like... Bitcoin ripoffs. Good for podcasters, bad for just people living in the time. Bad for people living. Mm. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. None of our usual news today. We'll return next week to our normal segment. But unfortunately, we once again have experienced a terrible and tragic shooting here in the United States that must be acknowledged. In Nashville, Tennessee, on Monday, a 28-year-old woman entered her former school, a private Christian elementary school named Covenant School, and shot and killed three children and three adults. Evelyn Dikos, Hallie Scruggs, and William Kinney, all nine-year-old students at the school, Cynthia Peak, 61, Catherine Kuntz, 60, and Mike Hill, 61, who were all working at the school. The shooter was eventually shot and killed by police. It has since been discovered that the shooter legally bought and owned seven weapons that she kept at her home despite being under treatment for an emotional disorder. We want to leave space to remember these six victims and to say our hearts are with their loved ones and all those at Covenant School. It feels like a weak response to repeat what we said last time, and there seems to be a lot of last times, but in reference to Buffalo and Uvalde, uh, we encourage all of our U.S. listeners to write to your representatives, demand change, and support organizations that will lobby for that change, but it's all that we can do. Hopefully, our lawmakers will do more. Yeah, last year they... uh actually passed the first uh, quote significant gun control reform in decades end quote uh and if you look at it it doesn't it doesn't do very much so uh so more would be great yeah especially since this uh this killer had legal weapons and um it's just awful that we we keep on having to talk about this and things just keep keep on happening but um we're thinking of everyone impacted by this, and uh, yeah, there's not much else to we we could say. Yeah, well, we wouldn't want to take automatic fire away from anyone's sporting weekends, so. Mm. 
That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain't it scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will. And special thanks to those already joining us in our top couple of family tiers over on Patreon. <laughs> Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakudis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Aussie Sean Downs, and Ryan. And guys, uh, keep those keep those eyes peeled for a little Carla Faye Tucker action coming up. Yuck. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew but after reading police reports, became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story.